and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. So here we go again. The Conservative Party appears to be in open revolt, with Robert Jenrick quitting as Immigration Minister after slamming Rishi Sunak's immigration plans as a triumph of hope over experience. Former Home Secretary Suella Braverman piled on the pressure by warning that Sunak's Rwanda bill will fail and lose him the next election. And at the time of recording, Rishi Sunak has just held a hastily assembled and slightly tetchy press conference. So how big a crisis is this for the government? What can Sunak do to satisfy both hardliners and moderates in his party? And will immigration now be the central issue at the next election? What was meant to be the week's big story has possibly lost its top billing. After much build-up, plenty of briefings to the press and hundreds of missing WhatsApp messages, Boris Johnson this week appeared before the Covid inquiry. In fact, at the time of recording, he's still there. We'll catch up on the former Prime Minister's performance and ask what we're learning, if anything, about his government's handling of the pandemic. And then we'll turn our attention to Labour. Keir Starmer made a big speech on the economy this week and also got into knots when he praised Margaret Thatcher for bringing in meaningful change as Prime Minister. With a general election looming, we'll explore just how prepared Labour is for a big year ahead. So lots to discuss, and with me are two people who I'm sure will have lots to say. Top IFG talent, Jill Rutter and Alex Thomas. Hi both. Hi Hannah. Hello Hannah. And I'm delighted that we're joined again by Paul War, Chief Political Commentator at the iPaper. Hi, Paul. Hi, Hannah. Now, let's start with Rwanda. This is turning into a very bad week for Rishi Sunak. His party is still far behind in the polls. His own personal ratings are way, way down. A close ally has quit the government and slammed the PM's immigration policy. And Sunak's been attempting to defend the toughest immigration law ever and turn the attention on to Labour. Paul, this has really escalated this week, hasn't it? It certainly has. I mean, you you say rightly it's been a bad week for Rishi Sunak, but I think the roots of this are a combination of bad policy and bad politics. At heart, what we saw in that press conference was Rishi Sunak trying to defend the indefensible in many ways. He said, uh, repeatedly, he said, ultimately, we will stop the boats. Now, that speaks volumes, in my opinion, because it suggests that actually his original pledge to stop the boats, the implication at the beginning of, of 2023 was that he would stop them by the end of the year. He certainly hasn't done that. And it certainly doesn't look like he's going to stop them by the time of the next election. So you ask yourself, in terms of the bad politics, um, making a p- commitment you really can't keep it, it is, is corrosive, uh, not just for his own party, but I think more broadly for trust in politics. And just to take a step back, if he'd promised to reduce the crossings, that would have been fine. He, he could have been a big tick at the end of this year, you know, reduce them by a third, then fine. But what happened, as I understand it, was Isaac Levido, the former guru in Australian politics, one of the many who came over here, thought that phrase stop the boats resonated with Scott Morrison's government and it could be translated here and at the last minute instead of just saying the commitment was to introduce an immune emergency bit of legislation on migration that transmogrified into stop the boats as a very very simplistic slogan so that's the bad politics I think the bad policy is the whole point of this is again Sunak was saying this in his press conference we need a deterrence the, you know my patience has snapped we need a deterrence Well, there's no evidence really that this would deter people from coming over. And if I was in the civil service and I was having to grapple with this, and you two can advise me on this, I mean, a minister comes to you with this sort of dog's breakfast of an idea. You try to make it work and you try your best and then you inevitably come up against the legal team who say, well, actually, that's just not going to fly. It's going to get bogged down in the courts. 
they've done their best with this latest iteration in the emergency legislation, it seems. They've not gone for the ridiculous withdrawal of the ECHR, but I'm still not convinced that this is not going to get bogged down in the court. So bad policy too. Well, we already saw actually Matthew Rycroft when he asked for a direction on the initial policy, say that there is no evidence to support the deterrent effect. So in a sense, it's an unproven hypothesis that this will act particularly as a deterrent, particularly when people look at the delays and look at how few people are likely to end up in Rwanda. I mean, maybe more of a deterrent that that you have no way of ever rectifying your status in the UK, if you think that's sustainable, because it will end up with increasing numbers of people in sort of a weird limbo with no route really to do anything, which may deter some people, but, but may not. Alex, we were discussing earlier the question that Sunak was asked at the press conference about whether the vote on the bill would be a confidence vote, and he said it wouldn't. Why do you think that was? Uh, I think because if he'd said it would be, all hell would have broken loose. But I mean, for me, that was one of those questions that if you're prime minister or any politician, you really shouldn't have answered. You know, we complain about politicians not answering questions. But if I was in Sunak's shoes, I would have done anything possible at that moment to say, turn it on Labour, you know, come up with some other fudge of an answer. I was quite surprised. He said, no, it's not going to be a confidence vote. Not because I was expecting him to make it one, because that then gives licence to Robert Jenwick, Sora Braverman, whoever, to say, well, no, this is not a confidence vote. I have confidence in the current government. I just have real problems with this legislation. So, I mean, he may yet turn it into one. But that did seem to me to be kind of going a bit early in getting to that whole debate. So if I was him, I would have tried to sidestep the the question. I mean, just just picking up a bit on what Paul and Jill were saying. I mean, the first thing on the civil service point, Paul's exactly right. What you could see, I think, the evidence of the civil service, both policy um, advisors and lawyers, was the kind of the delicacy of some of the carve-outs. And that will have been where the civil service work's been happening over the course of the last two, three, four weeks and and longer. It, you know, The past is long since old over whether this is going to happen and whether it's workable and the extent to which it's a deterrent and so on. We had that debate a year ago, you know, done. It's it's about the kind of intricacies of the, of the bill. But I think the, the frustrating thing from whether it's a civil servant's point of view or anyone who is more interested in the policy than the politics, is we've got a fetishised policy in the Rwanda policy. We've now also got a sort of fetishised piece of legislation. A a little bit of me wonders, and we heard this, Jonathan Jones has done a piece for us on it. I heard, I think it was Dominic Grieve last night saying this, if they'd just done the treaty, you might have a bit of a shot then at trying to get this process moving and then seeing what happened in the domestic courts and then perhaps ultimately the ECHR. Clearly, we've enormously jumped the shark on the politics of the legislation, but actually it's yet another sort of distraction that is actually not going to make any difference to getting anything done, but has become a political virility test. And Sunak keeps on seeming to sort of set these tests and then failing them. I think it's quite interesting that there's a formal confidence vote. Is this something which will end up with the government failing as terminated the Callaghan government back in 1979 and precipitated an election because he lost a vote there? Or is there a sort of confidence in the Prime Minister vote? And I think the real risk for Rishi Sunak is a Prime Minister who can't command quite a big swathe of his party on an issue that he has elevated to such a temic status looks very badly wounded. And I think in terms of the the party management and ultimately getting your business through the House of Commons, 
We're already seeing this week that the sort of hardcore of rebels, aren't we? You know, on the on the blood inquiry, you know, there were rebels there who voted with the Labour amendment and that could have serious impact on public policy. And, but there are a lot of people on that list there. They're a disparate group. There are people from Andrea Jenkins to people on the sort of more softer or um, centrist wing of the party. And they they were both sets of people clearly dissatisfied enough with the government that they thought they could rebel. And I thought nominally this government has got a, a decent majority. We all know that in, in historic terms. It's a decent-ish majority. But it f- doesn't feel like that. And we f- we found that with Boris Johnson too, didn't we? That actually a nominal majority, actually, without the real political management and skill to sort out a policy before you launch the legislation, before you announce it, to square off all the different bits of the party, that's what's gone wrong, it seems. What's strange is we've now got a situation where the government announces a piece of legislation and then you've got the two different bits of the party, the One Nation group and you've got the ERG successor group saying they'll both have a star chamber to assess that legislation, make their own minds up about it. I mean, that's the wrong way of doing things. You you square them off beforehand, surely. I don't know. I mean, I think the strength of the One Nationers, to be honest, is overdone. I think in some senses there's a, there's a fake centrism about Rishi Sunak and there's a, certainly a fake centrism about this legislation. It is not centrist in any way. It is the one thing you've got right uh, in that press conference was it's the most extreme hardline form of immigration legislation we've seen for a very very long time Um, and you know it, it, that says a lot about the Prime Minister and about the drift of the Tory party over many years that that somehow is seen as moderate and that it s- still can't satisfy the crocodiles. And I think the story we've seen since the 90s from Major to Cameron to May is if you try and feed the crocodiles of the right, they end up biting your arm off. And I think that they're, they're just insatiable. And I think that might be the problem for Rishi Sunak here. All this talk about a possible leadership move against him, it, it sounds a bit overblown, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they hold their powder and come back again in the new year if they're not satisfied with the polls. And Alex, I mean, Sunak's attempt, his response in the press conference and to questions was to try to shift attention away from this sort of impossible task he seems to have of squaring the hardliners and the moderates in his own party and to focus attention on Labour. That, I would say, in the press conference came across as as quite odd because all the questions were really f- focused on the politics of his own party but is does this actually present a headache for Keir Starmer both in terms of setting out his approach to immigration now but also if labor win the next election whatever situation they will inherit yeah i mean in the press conference and and at the moment it makes sense i think for sunak to uh, try to put the focus on Labour. You know, he's picked his dividing line and so he needs to divide uh, and, and, and use it. So it does make sense for him to say that. I don't think this at the moment at least causes a particular headache for Labour. Starmer's set out a pretty clear position that they're against the Rwanda plan. They wouldn't do it if they were in government. They will repeal it if they come in. So it's not one of those awkward policy or finance decisions that we've seen quite a lot of over the course of the last few months where Labour, because they don't want to commit, are are, are having to perform an uncomfortable dance. I think immigration and asylum, if Labour come in to form the next election, will be a problem for them. But but precisely because it's it doesn't bring the same kind of salience, they're not looking to their right wing and to Reform UK and to the wider political situation in the same way. It will still be a problem, but I suspect the lens for Labour will be more about the strain on public services and the consequences of high levels of migration, if indeed it does continue, than these sorts of kind of schemes and the 
the uh, the interventions and the sort of intensity of the politics that that's happening in the Conservative Party. So Alex has sort of widened the conversation to migration generally, and I think one of the things that's interesting about this week is we had some really quite sort of radical plans earlier in the week on curbing legal migration. And I think that's really interesting because there's sort of quite big implications for what really is going to happen to social care if you tell people coming in on a social care visa absolutely no chance you can bring your dependents with you. Quite a lot of them appear to do that. Really interesting, I thought, that within 12 hours or so, the government was getting negative commentary from two leading lights of Spectator on its proposal to massively up the uh, income threshold for bringing foreign spouses in. And I think that might unravel relatively quickly because there are an awful lot of people with children who seem to be caught, potentially caught by that, who seem to be rather unhappy. So I think it's really interesting that we've been focusing very much on Rwanda, which is dealing with a little part of the problem, but the government's also trying to tackle that very big number. And the first effect of some of those measures it takes seems to me because a lot of them kick in in April is to ensure that the government will have a rush through the floodgates between now and April if the Home Office can process the visas in time and then actually Labour potentially is the beneficiary of numbers going down which most people expect to happen anyway because of all the one-off figures and that very very high number the government was reacting to. So I think it'd be interesting to see when that comes back for more scrutiny and whether the government really can hold the line on some of the things that it's announced. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. On the family visa point, I mean, it's been significant. We've seen part of the Tory party and the sort of the right say this is anti-family, it's unconservative. And I suspect we, we heard in a lobby briefing the very next day, um, they were pressed on this point, you know, surely this is going to affect Brits as well as uh, migrants who, who want to bring family over. And on the face of it, I think I, th- I think Ben Ansel, the political scientist, has pointed out that on the face of it, that a, a Brit could be penalised even more than a migrant who's a high-earning migrant who could bring their family in and a Brit couldn't, uh, who was a low-earning Brit. So I think that's going to be a problem politically. The following day in the lobby briefing, that they were when they were pressed on this, there seemed to be a bit of sort of slight retrenchment, a slight a bit of realisation, oh, this is, this is going to be politically difficult. Uh, they were trying to finesse it, say there could be exceptional circumstances where people, this won't apply. I suspect they'll quietly go away and say, oh, have a rethink on that. And maybe it'll be the impact assessment on the the SIs that introduce this that will, when they go through that process, they'll say, hold on a tick, this is not looking good. We don't want Daily Mail readers, Daily Telegraph readers who are giving a, a story of, you know, my heartbreak, my separation from my family, having worked hard abroad and come over here. And to that to really run as a story. So I think they may have to finesse that, I think. But that doesn't mean that they'll move from their overall stance, which is that migration is, is quote, too high, because that's exactly what Labour are saying, unusually for, for Labour saying it is too high. That's exactly the quick point I was going to make. And it's, you know, it's the IFG point, which is the policymaking process that has gone behind this, the kind of drilling through all the different consequences, the impact assessment, the economic impact assessment. I mean, these things are pretty procedural and you know, in one sense geeky, but this is why they matter. This is, the, this, this is why you do all of this stuff. You might do it to an accelerated timetable, but it is so that you can drive through all the different consequences. You can then say when someone says, well, what on earth is the effect on the economy or the NHS on these things? You've got an answer because you've thought it through. So you know, it is banging the same old drum, but it's really in politicians' own interest to do this work before they announce things. 
And Paul, just to pick up on something Alex mentioned very quickly earlier, do you think that Reform and Nigel Farage, still in the jungle as we speak, are having a sort of similar impact on Sunak and his thinking ahead of the election that UKIP did on David Cameron back in the day? I think they're certainly worried about it. Whether or not that's a, a founded worry, uh, whether it's founded in reality, I'm not sure. There's a big debate of whether or not those those polling figures are, are overblown. You know, eleven, maybe twelve percent for for reform. Uh, whether or not that's inflated, whether in a general election would really materialise in, in any significant way. What was true is that they're worried about it and. I think that Farage being in the jungle, having this massive profile will certainly harm them because let's be honest, Farage has never been tested. His own ideas for, quote, stopping the boats, his own ideas are essentially the quite militaristic ones, literally push back the boats, which have maybe succeeded in a very rare circumstances. And the thing about Farage overall is he's never been tested in office, of course. And and we may find out what that looks like after the next election, if he does indeed do a reverse takeover of the Tory party. But um, right now, I think what's really fascinating is how Rishi Sunak's been spooked into a lot of the politicians, policy positions he's taking by not just a fear of that, but a fear of those former UKIP people who are now at the heart of the Tory party. And, you know, the whole migration approach this week just shows how far they've gone down that Farage route and, uh, and how they've been UKIPized, I suppose. And what's your prediction, Paul, for how the votes on the bill will, will go next week? Right now, I think the bulk of the Tory party actually will be quite happy with it. Um, uh, there's a lot of overblown stuff in the sense that, yeah, all right, you only need 29 Tories to, to defeat this. But that relies, A, on Labour voting against it. I'd like to see whether or not they come out and say categorically they're going to vote against it or whether or not they might abstain. In theory, they ought to be voting against this plan because they, they've listed lots of problems with it. But, you know, I don't know about that. The second point is, do they have the numbers? I suspect the One Nation group would be brought on board. Are there 29 people who really want to cause that trouble for, for Rishi Sunak before Christmas when there's really not much chance of then a follow-up? There's certainly no uh, desire for general election amongst the Tory backbenches. So I think it's a bit overblown. But as I say, I think the damage will... will it, there'll be some damage done, there'll be a few rebels, and then it'll resurface again in the new year uh, in another form. And I think that's what they've really got to be worried about. Okay, let's turn to Boris Johnson's COVID inquiry appearance. As I said, at the time we are recording today on Thursday, the former PM is still giving evidence, but he's had plenty already to say. Jill, what do you make of how things have gone? The bit that I found really interesting was some of the bits about why were they so slow to act in February? And I thought what came out very clearly there and you could almost imagine that and it sort of you know cross-referred with some of the other evidence we had from other witnesses that Johnson just clearly never believed this was going to come and affect the UK just yeah thought it was a sort of Asian risk Asian problem that would very conveniently stay in Asia and we'd heard from other witnesses that they'd always described the UK's plans as world beating. So we're going to be world beating in it, but it wasn't going to come here. It was yet another sort of BSE, swine flu, Y2K, whatever you want. It was another of these overblown risks and really, really wasn't going to hit. It was only in sort of March that they suddenly woke up. Um, the scientists, I think, were saying that if you'd actually looked at the sage minutes, which he seemed to have a very relaxed association with, he might have understood that a bit earlier. So... 
interesting questions back to the scientists to see what the inquiry makes of that. The other bit I found really, really interesting was when uh, Hugo Keith, the KC for the inquiry, repeatedly put to him questions about how damaging the dysfunction within government was, the toxic culture in number 10. And he either said he was completely unaware of it and then you know, was had WhatsApps read back at him, not mostly his own, because they've gone missing in action, but had messages read back at him. And he gave the impression that actually this was just par for the course. This was a normal way to run a government. You know, a politician every day was bombarded by people saying sack it all the other people because they were all uh, expletive, useless and things like that. So I thought his sort of vision of what made a good working environment was perhaps a bit unusual. Debating last night whether this is perhaps because we've just worked in government and in a very well-run think tank. Paul might say, well, yeah, he came from journalism. That's just like routine with us because it's not, I think, whatever. And he did suggest that maybe if we had access to the WhatsApps of Sir Robin Butler and Sir Robert Armstrong, they'd have been very similar to which I think the answer is. Yeah, right. I don't think so. (laughs) Honestly, I don't think so. I can imagine not. But you make the point about the comparison with journalism and, and, and it's a valid one because I think that this lays bare that Boris Johnson came from a magazine background. Now, don't forget, basically, he, he tried to run the government the way he edited The Spectator, which was rather loose, rather sort of disparate bunch of talented individuals, but you couldn't really herd them. And all accounts are that basically his very, very stern secretary ran The Spectator. He did, he did not run it. He was basically the figurehead. He was the sort of hell fellow well met at the top. And that's fine. And he was a talented journalist and he could knock off copy late, which isn't always a great idea. But um, he seemed to then transfer those skills to City Hall. Again, he had someone called Simon Milton who basically acted like the secretary at the the Spectator and whipped him into shape and made sure he was on time for various things and did various things and made sure policy was enacted eventually. In government, he didn't really have that kind of figure at his side. And Eddie Lister, who he hoped would be that figure, didn't really seem to have the power to do it. And to be fair to my humble trade, it's not a profession, obviously, but to my trade, most newspapers, not magazines, are very, very well run. They have very specific targets, they have very specific deadlines. You do have to meet them. There is an empty page at the printing press unless you meet up uh, your certain deadlines. So... I would I would say that actually he's he's not enacted the best of my trade, but the, the worst of it. And the problem is that the poor public will be thinking, well, yeah, thanks for treating us like, you know, um, what, 18 Doughty Street on The Spectator. And Paul, you've been keeping a tally of uh, what Johnson has claimed he cannot remember. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, I, I watched every minute of his evidence yesterday. In, in due deference to this podcast, I've not watched every minute today. Uh, but I did watch every minute yesterday and there were I counted 19 I don't remembers. And if I were the inquiry chair, uh, Lady Haller, I'd, I'd basically come to the conclusion that he's an unreliable witness. Now, she wouldn't be that impolite. And she was very polite to him personally in the inquiry, as was Hugo Keith uh, within the certain strictures of it. But I would come away, if I, if that were a court of law, I'd come away thinking I really couldn't rely on this guy. Not just his, his, his failure to recollect things, which is highly suspicious, but also Keith was very, very good today and yesterday at, at, at contradicting that, that lack of recollection. We're saying, actually, you had a WhatsApp. Here it is. It's 
it's written in black and white. And I think well, some of the most interesting bits for the inquiry for me, I, a lot of people, there's this view, that, oh, it's a waste of time. You know, you're not going to learn much. Boris is Boris. What What's going to happen? I think actually it was quite valuable because he was pinned down on various key bits of policy. And to me, the most significant bit was he would push back against Cummings and all the other advisors and basically dismiss what they said. He certainly wouldn't dismiss the handwritten notes by some of his private secretaries. And when some of those notes included things, for example, you know, whether or not the elderly were basically going to die anyway and and shouldn't we let it rip? And he didn't dispute those because he couldn't. There was a handwritten contemporaneous note by a civil servant and it was much harder for him. He realised he could not dismiss that in the way he could dismiss a WhatsApp. And I thought that was quite interesting. And I think that overall, the impression is that, yes, he did say those things and maybe that did influence some of those big decisions. I completely agree with Paul on the value of hearing from Boris Johnson sort of personally on this because you have this been so much commentary around it it's sort of inevitably there'd be a kind of something like the you know the air coming out of the balloon when when Johnson was actually in the chair but it, it is valuable I also agree that I think there's a bit you know social media debate on who the main character is here whether it's Hugo Keith or somebody else the main character in terms of the the long-term consequences of this is Baroness Hallett and you know, she will be making up her mind and you know surprise surprise <laughs> Boris Johnson unable to recall things the other sort of extra point that struck me is that Johnson clearly has a big picture narrative in his mind about what happened over the course of the pandemic and he has absorbed things that reinforce that pandemic including for example some recent revisions from data from the ONS and elsewhere about kind of where in the league table the UK was in terms of deaths and he was really pushing back hard on the the lawyer for the Covid families who was picking up on something that happened yesterday actually saying that actually the UK was not mid-table in terms of deaths the UK did particularly badly particularly by the way about given some of our advantages about centralised NHS and so on but the UK did particularly badly Johnson could not accept that. He had absolutely taken it on board that when all was said and done, we'd done okay. And that is central to his message. And anything that undermined that with this sort of persistent digging away by actually not Hugo Keith, the other lawyer for the families, seemed to to sort of completely shake his ability to tell that story and that was that was why I think he was then getting tetchy and I think that the, the, for me the, one of the most interesting things um, and, and the focus of Hugo Keith the lead counsel for the inquiry was this idea of system failure. So getting away from the psychodrama of the sweary WhatsApps, you know, and I'm sure the civil service will be looking at this really closely. There was a, basically a series of questions about, well, did the system fail? You know, did the, did the structures fail? Did the early warnings, were they unheeded? Why were they unheeded? Why wasn't a minuted version of what the Treasury wanted to push back against what the Department of Health wanted? Why was there no economic equivalent of SAGE? Johnson says, well, the economic equivalent of SAGE is the Treasury. But right the council for the inquiry said, well, actually, no, but the problem there is they're not minuted or they're not publicly available in the same way that SAGE minutes are. So there are those points, but there are also this idea that you've got someone like Dominic Cummings in a very senior role who loathes the civil service and has this idea of move fast and break things. And at the other other angle, you've got someone like Helen McNamara, who's trying to work within the system, saying, yes, I agree with many of your criticisms. We lack the data. We lack some of the systems. And I think the civil service will hold its hand up and say, yeah, we didn't have enough data. And some of the systems weren't working. But her answer is not to smash things, but to actually say, well, why can't we embrace the legislation we've already got, for example, on on public health going locally rather than having a brand new test and trace system from nowhere. And also the just the idea that government is really about, at its best, 
it can cope and move quickly when it needs to, but within the bounds of what is normal and pragmatic. So the furlough scheme was got up really quickly and effectively by the Treasury. Some fantastic work there. Just It was a reminder that just all the great work the Treasury did during the global financial crisis, that there are talented civil servants who can move at speed if you let them. And I think that it'd be nice to see the inquiry come out with some of those conclusions about the implications of whether the system worked. And the systems were working better at the end of 2020 and into 2021. Certainly that was my conclusions in the evidence I gave to the inquiry, but the decisions were still pretty poor. So I think... Uh, th- th- there's almost a sort of you know scientific case study of where everything was in chaos in spring 2020 that was really difficult can can learn from that but then quite a lot had been drawn together there was a covid task force uh, there was better order in uh, you know far from perfect clearly but there was better order in the center of government by certainly early 2021 but schools were still opened and then closed again within 24, 48 hours. And I think that is much more on the individual decisions of Boris Johnson and ministers. And one of the questions that sort of comes out is to what extent was it systems that the problem or to what extent was it, to quote Lee Kane, the sort of wrong prime minister for this crisis? And I think when you heard some of the evidence from Boris Johnson, he repeatedly said, why weren't you paying attention in February? Well, no one was escalating it to me. And I was just thinking back to when Gordon Brown became prime minister, which Alex may remember, there was you know, a sort of minor problem, a foot and mouth outbreak. We were working in DEFRA Felt at the time. Felt quite major at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, but it wasn't that no. big. It was something, it was containable in one department. And Gordon Brown insisted on cancelling his holiday immediately to come back to London to take control. Uh, you could imagine, you know, with Gordon Brown, with a lot of other prime ministers, that actually they would have been asking far more questions. Are you sure we're, you know, we're okay? What if, you know, Boris Johnson never seems to have asked a what if you're wrong question. He seemed, you know, if everybody said, yeah, it's okay, you don't have to worry, you'll push it head about it. That was the answer he wanted to hear. And even as people were sort of raising the alarms up, it was still the answer he was hearing. And I think it'd be very interesting to see where the inquiry ends up landing, between to what extent was he and the rest of us failed by the system? And to what extent was he an integral part of that failure to pay enough intention, to give enough direction, to make decisions? But what worries me, though, is, is that, and I think from the point of view of the public is, they know this stuff about Boris Johnson's character. They know this claim that, you know, he was the wrong guy with the wrong skill set for a, for, for a crisis. But the point is surely that the system should be able to cope with an individual who's Ill- ill-equipped for a crisis. And it's a bit like when we're flying a plane, even if the pilot is inept, there are lots of systems around to make sure he doesn't crash it. And to me, I think that will be quite interesting in just how much Hallett looks at that. You know, what what's there to sort of counteract some of those inadequacies on behalf of the politicians? That doesn't mean putting the, the civil servants in charge at all, but it means that what systems were built around to make sure that even if he didn't get it, that someone was at his shoulder. Well, Alex, this is something that we've been thinking about quite a lot at the IFG about how the centre of government works and precisely these questions that Paul raises about what you need at the centre to make sure that whoever becomes prime minister is well supported. This is exactly why we're looking at the central government in this commission that we're running at the moment to report by uh, early next year. So keep an eye out for that. But it goes precisely to both Paul and Jill's point, which is that clearly we're operating in a democratic context. It would be appalling to suggest that a prime minister shouldn't be ultimately the person running the show. And however, you know, however we change the the means by which prime ministers are selected, whether that's you know votes of party members and confidence of the House of Commons and and all of that. But I do also agree. I have quite a lot of sympathy with Paul's point about you know guardrails that are not kind of 
of immutable guardrails, a, a, a prime minister can still do what they want to do. And we're not talking about civil service obstructionism. But we've talked a lot, Jill and I, in our slightly you know, different ways, have talked a lot about being much clearer about what the responsibilities are on very senior civil servants. Ultimately, the politicians get their way. But to what extent should you be calling out in a way that Jill said earlier, Matthew Rycroft did on the value for money aspects of the Rwanda scheme? Feasibility, the propriety of behaviour, ultimately the civil service is, you know, this whole kind of Sir Humphrey characterisation of the civil service has, has left a long shadow. The civil service is actually pretty weak when it comes to a, um, to a to a set of ministers who are either determined in what they want to do or determined not to do the things that they should be doing. So, you know, plenty of fertile territory there. Okay, let's turn our attention to Labour, still ahead in the polls and by some margin. But does the party have a plan for power? Well, luckily for us, that's what Paul has been exploring in a new podcast for the iPaper, which I believe also features the wise thoughts of Jill too. Paul, before we get into the plan, let's start with Stammer's speech this week. What do you think he was trying to do and did it work? I think he was. it was basically, it was a one-line speech in many ways, which is, we won't turn the spending taps on. And that's part of this overall strategy they've got with Rachel Reeves of just trying to project reassurance to the public. And I, I do think it's fascinating. I mean, we discussed it in our podcast about that balance between the need to reassure voters about Labour's record on the economy and the need for radicalism or a sense of hope and change. And it's about this idea of credible hope. What can an opposition party give to the electors that it forms a sort of sense of credible hope? So you don't want to scare them, but equally you want to say why they should be voting for you in a positive way that's not just we're not the other lot. And I think having done all of these interviews, and we kept them very specific, um, you know, we won't be a weekly challenge to the IFG podcast. This is, this is a <laughs> very limited series. Plenty of those. <laughs> um, but we, we kept it to just four and we might do four more next year but the first four were you know the economy the north-south divide brexit and the nhs and and health healthcare generally and just looking at four limited areas and what difference would labor really make in each of those and they're all enormous areas they don't naturally overlap all his missions his five missions but i think the the overall message for me was a really interesting one having talked to different advisors and politicians past and present was that that there were three things the first one was that they're not ready in lots of ways in lots of policies areas whether it's a funding package for social care yeah they've got the short term sorted but the long term they really haven't grasped similarly on on taxation we're gonna have to wait for that how are they going to make their spending plans add up so they're not ready in lots of areas i heard that complaint from various so-called stakeholders who would like to engage with them and this doesn't mean publicly it could even be privately and that includes europe you know what are your plans to sort of find some kind of fourth way if you're not going to do a single market or a customs union how well are you going to boost trade significantly with europe the second thing was just a sense of incrementalism that maybe they think incrementalism is the way forward in other words you you add up lots of little changes and they make a big change in the end and given the tight circumstances they'll be finding themselves in that incrementalism they seem to think is almost like a virtue and so for example on tax lots of little pocks of money that they could raise from various wealthy groups the treasury understand as i understand it are already looking at those pots of money for 
this government, never mind the next one. And although we can dismiss it as being feeble, if you add them all up, they could be quite substantial. And there's that incremental approach to virtually everything else. So in other words, we'll get in, we'll make a start, we might slowly increase public spending. It's not going to be a dramatic turning of the taps, but you know the taps might drip a bit more. And the third thing was Labour's still residual fear of talking about what it's going to do and that ultimately I think we'll only ever find out what it's going to do after the general election. So a lot of this stuff will come out then. So people are voting on a sort of slight wing and a prayer. I thought that's my overall impression of it. Joe, what did you make of Starmer's slight political cross-dressing, should we put it this this week, his references to Margaret Thatcher, which he's, he, he got a bit of flack for? Well, there's a bit of a debate about whether a sort of positive word about Thatcher is really going to be the thing that lures the final wavering conservative voter to vote Labour. I'm not very clear that it does. I don't think any people do think. But I think if he's saying... I want to be a prime minister who has a good go, a good innings, a good go at reform. And I'm a prime minister who makes a difference and points out that actually most prime ministers don't make that much of a difference and selected out, I think, Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair and Clement Attlee as prime ministers who made a difference and tried to do things very differently and leave their mark on the country. And that's what he wants to be. Then I think that's a pretty reasonable list. I mean, I think the one thing I would have said is... Actually, he didn't seem to find that much uh, to attribute to Tony Blair in his list in terms of things he'd done. He actually managed to find a better list, both Clement Attlee and Margaret Thatcher. On that point about Blair, I, I, I'll never forget bumping into Keir Starmer coming out of a recording studio in December uh, 19 when Labour had lost the election and he was on the airwaves, Radio 4, and he'd just come off the, ra- the radio having basically done a pitch for, for leader. And round the corner, literally round the corner, one street away, was Tony Blair was giving a, a, his speech and his reaction to the election defeat. And it was a big meaty speech from Blair basically saying, you know, this is a moment now where everyone should grasp it. And so I bumped into into um, Keir Starmer and I said, uh, I'm just off to Tony Blair. Are you, are you going there? And he said, he said certainly not. And <laughs> I thought that was so telling. He was running a mile from Tony Blair at that point. And now they're in regular contact. He's seen the error of his ways. There are, you know, a lot of Blair's thinking is apparent now. And I think that that's quite telling uh, that he's had been forced into that position. The big question with Keir Starmer is, was he always a Blairite? Did he, did he slowly move that position? I come to the view that actually he's ultimately just someone who wants to win and he'll do anything to become prime minister. Uh, and that, that story shows how it shows how the whole framing can change, doesn't it? You know, so, and I think we, it's, we need to keep in mind that what will happen if Labour do win after the election the ground rules will suddenly be you know up in the air and change again and so it is it's one of these interesting things sort of trying to predict what might happen after the the election we will be operating in such a different environment in the same way as Starmer was operating in a totally different environment before he won the leadership things could things could coalesce quite kind of profoundly differently or they could roll on but the very the interesting thing with being so cautious and the sort of almost trappist vow is how much momentum do they get out of a victory, which at the moment would be a victory because everybody's given up on the Conservatives rather than anything positive about Labour. And I think it's interesting on momentum and interesting about whether they feel they've got space to do difficult things. If they haven't levelled with the British people about some of the extent of the problems they face on public spending, on taxation, on a whole range, on migration even, on a whole range of issues... 
will they feel they have to sort of muddle through, slightly mislead, do this sort of very tactical dancing around? Or will they feel that actually they've got licence to set a new direction? I think that what will be really interesting on that score, actually, is is and that sense of flexibility and, and how much room for manoeuvre they've got is the wording of the manifesto. I've been talking to quite a lot of people in doing this podcast and, and they're all keen on having some kind of really cleverly worded manifesto that gives them space to do things. For example, social care. They have to put something in there which says a, a sort of direction of social care and funding that isn't specific, but says essentially we have a mandate. And if you then have a mandate for various really tricky, thorny subjects, whether it's social care or something else, then you can then say, well, we've got this big majority and, you know, we're doing it and we're going to be doing it over 10 years. Then you get a sense of mission. and But that's going to be quite tricky, that, that formulation of that manifesto. And I think it's going to take some real skill. And Alex, what have you made of the sort of mission-led approach which Starmer's set out? Do you think this is going to make a difference to the way in which Labour does government if it wins the next election? I think we'll see. I mean, to precisely to you know, Paul's point about the manifesto and the other things that we were talking about. I and mean, I think fundamentally, a mission-driven, mission-led, choose your wording, approach to government is quite a good thing. It would help to address, if it was taken seriously, the cross-cutting and long-term policy problems that we often talk about here. I think it is, though, an open question exactly what it means, you know, the, the extent to which it is a way of talking about kind of buckets of issues, or the extent to which it is actually a kind of plan or philosophy of, of governing. Talking to civil servants and stuff, I think there's a risk that the you know the civil service could hear mission-driven government and could civil serviceize it and suddenly say, well, here's what mission-driven government means to the civil service, and then that's something different to what's in the minds of the Labour Party. So I think there is, as you know, we would obviously reflect on in all of our work here, quite quite a bit of heavy lifting to do to say what does you know, how are these missions the same and how are they different what does that mean for the relationships between government departments what does that mean for how you allocate budgets and money some of the missions are quite specific some of them are quite general how do you kind of work through all of that so i don't think it can just be a single a single kind of sort of template but it, it could be quite interesting if if they get it right what i don't think it is but you know Paul will have a better view from the, the journalistic side is, is a great way of campaigning. I don't think it kind of resonates with the people. No, and but there's a further point there, which is that actually Labour have yet to request access talks with the civil service. And, and I think that is quite telling because it suggests that they really aren't ready yet in a lot of policy areas. And if, if I were just looking from the outside, that to me just seems slightly baffling. And I'd be slightly worried if I was a, a Labour MP about that because you think, well, we're being told we've got a professional outfit. You were being told we've changed. But what's happening behind the scenes? Where are those contacts? Where are those policy discussions and explorations and, and why aren't they happening so I don't know I think that, that if I was a voter the voter won't be aware of that but they should be aware of that Well that's it for today thank you to Alex Thomas Joe Rutter and especially to Paul War. and thank you to everyone for listening in you can find all our Inside Briefing episodes and all our podcasts at iTunes Spotify and all major platforms do subscribe and please leave us a review Remember to head to our website for our COVID inquiry live blog, all our explainers and commentary on the Rwanda plan, our explainer on access talks and much, much more. Surely no one was thinking that things would be quietening down in the run up to Christmas. Have a great weekend, everyone.